My wife and I have dropped out of society, and we really just were going to roam across the country and find ourselves, uh, just like they did in Easy Rider. Easy what? Easy Rider, the, the film. Oh, I didn't see that film. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and ready to take the world in a love embrace, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. Welcome back, sweetie. (laughs) On this week's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of the 1969 counterculture classic Easy Rider, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this summer. And Nakia, before we get to that, I think we probably should acknowledge that we've been on a bit of an unscheduled hiatus. Yes. Recently, or more accurately, I guess it was a scheduled hiatus that just went on a little longer than we were originally planning. Well, that's the beauty of not being paid to do this, (laughs) is that I don't have to do shit, so. (laughs) You know, we got a little caught up with other projects and all the annoying demands of real life, and Mm -hmm. yes, but now we're back. We're well-rested. Are we? Reinvigorated. Are we? Recommitted. Are we? And planning to be releasing new episodes every week for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Until the next six-month break. Aren't you glad to be back? Haven't you missed doing this every week? No, I have felt just good not having to shit on things every weekend. It's actually been really positive for, like, my skin cleared up. Like, it was just a good thing. <laughs> You know, it's. I just thought it was a coincidence, but you have seemed really in a better mood. Just generally, you know, a, little, a, happier a little spring person. in your step yeah, on the weekend. I thought it was just because the weather was better. No, I mean that's definitely part of it. Uh-huh. But the other part of it was that I was not, you know, subjected to <laughs> horrible films. In fact, since we're here and we've been off for a while, why don't you remind our listeners or, you know, inform any new listeners who might have found us during the hiatus? What exactly is the premise of The Unenthusiastic Critic as you understand it? Um, I think you are laying the groundwork for divorce. <laughs> In a nutshell. Um, the- you have not divorced <laughs> me yet. I really don't know what it's going to take. I mean, we've, we've gotten close. Gremlins was definitely a, a moment. <laughs> um, what is the premise of this show? The premise of this show is that you, in a very uh, condescending <laughs> and... Uh, I, I feel like the word mansplaining is going to come That's come part up of here. it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, feel that I have somehow uh, missed out on what you consider to be these sort of cultural milestones in film. And so mm, you yeah. are sharing with me uh, films that are considered sort of culturally important or films that are particularly important to you um, that you have some sort of unexplained nostalgia for. Yeah. <laughs> just a just a tiny undercurrent of judgment in your I voice mean, when it's, you say it's, some of these it's things. An ex- it, it's a weird form of relationship therapy 
but there's no good. I know, it's a very, it's a weird thing. Um, but so, there's no healing. There's no, you know that episode of The Simpsons where they go to, is it Dr. Monroe? Is that uh, the, where yeah. they just beat each other with bats? <laughs> and, and give that, each other electric shocks. And that's therapy. That's sort uh-huh. of what this is. They leave that episode very happy, though. They, they're they happy with how that therapy works out. Not not really. <laughs> no. Okay, so let's let's talk about this movie. What do you actually know about Easy Rider? I know jack shit about Easy Rider. I think literally jack shit. There are motorcycles involved. Is it Jack Nicholson? Jack Nicholson is in it. That's the extent of my knowledge. Okay, <laughs> that's not a lot of knowledge. Nope. But I feel good about that level of knowledge, and would be fine living the rest of my days with just that level of knowledge. I think we briefly talked about it when we were watching some other movie. I don't remember what it was. Well, okay, so I think, and I think this is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. We have talked a couple of times about the new Hollywood era. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about it first when we did The Godfather. Mm -hmm. We may have talked about it when we did Dog Day Afternoon. Possibly. But that's the era. It's the late 60s through the 70s era that we're talking about. This brief period where it was considered this artistic renaissance after Hollywood had almost died Mm -hmm. in the previous decade. And actually, I was thinking about it. You like all of those movies. You you might actually like this era of filmmaking. Which ones did I like? You liked The Godfather. Did I? I was drunk, though. So I don't know that we can count that. I enjoyed the drinking, and I enjoyed shitting on Fredo. I don't know that I liked the film. You really liked Dog Day Afternoon? I did like Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, you liked 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yes. Okay, so that's this is all the same era we're talking I li- about. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I liked it as a an artistic exercise. I don't know that I would ever watch 2001 Probably not going to sit down and watch no. that one again, huh? Yeah, I, okay. I respected it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Easy Rider is obviously one of the important films in that, that narrative about the new Hollywood era. Peter Biskin, whose book... He, he put it right in the title. The book is called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood. Mm. That's, you know, where he sort of lays out the narrative for how the whole new Hollywood era came to be. Sounds like a white dude page turner. It's a good book. You should read it. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Sounds like a book someone would reference if they're like the dude that's trying to pick you up with his like film knowledge. <laughs> Have you ever read, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> Buy my drink and go away. <laughs> I'm not buying your drink. <laughs> okay, so the year here is 1969, which was a pretty important year mm-hmm. in American culture. 68 was probably historically the more important year with, you know, all its protests and race riots and assassinations and whatnot that yes. happened in 68. But 69 was an unmistakable watershed in the formation of the modern American zeitgeist, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, In his book, 1969, The Year Everything Changed, author Rob Kirkpatrick says, In a single year, America saw the peaks and valleys of an entire decade. The death of the old and the birth of the new. The birth, I would argue, of modern America. And he he makes a pretty good case, because there was a lot of shit that went down in 69. Mm -hmm. Uh, In politics, this was the year Eisenhower died and Richard M. Nixon was sworn in as president. Uh, Teddy Kennedy drove off a bridge in Chappaquiddick that year, sort of ending the whole Kennedy Camelot era. In music, the Beatles broke up and Diana Ross left the Supremes, but Led Zeppelin and Iggy Pop released their first albums. (laughs) The counterculture had three days of love and peace at Woodstock in the summer. And then a few months later, the Hells Angels were stabbing a guy to death at the Stones concert in Altamont. Yeah. 
Kirkpatrick argues this was the year that the sexual revolution kind of went mainstream, where the books like Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask on the bestseller list. On the good side, <laughs> we watched The Moon Landing in 69. Obviously, we just had the 50th anniversary of that. Yes. Not so good. We also found out about the My Lai Massacre that same year. Mm-hmm. We had the Stonewall Riots launching the gay rights movement. We had the trial of the Chicago 8. Sesame Street premiered. So, unfortunately, did the Manson family and the Zodiac Killer. It was, it was a busy year. It was with a, lot a of, very busy year. A lot of good and bad. Mostly bad. Do you have any association with this period? It's a little before your, little before your slightly time. before my time, and slightly before my parents' time. Um, no, my parents were a little young for this movement moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents were a little old. Actually, <laughs> they were. I, I was born almost exactly a month after Woodstock, so I was. I also am celebrating my fiftieth anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're calling it? That's what we're calling it. Okay. Yes. But my parents all, I was the third kid. They already had two kids. They were not camping out in a muddy field in Woodstock. They were Lots of people brought their children. Parking. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any, you know, what, what's your conception of that? That kind of counterculture, the hippie movement? Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of um, association with that time. I obviously don't have any nostalgia around it because I was not there. And most of my knowledge about that time is on the negative side of things. So. Okay. That was the year that uh, Chicago police murdered Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. I took a class at the UFC with um, Stathis Kalivas <laughs> on, uh, I think it was Violence and Civil Strife was the name of the class. Happy. Super. I don't actually know how I came to take that class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really? Because it sounds like you. But it was It like, sounds like something you'd be into. The Rwandan genocide Jesus. and uh, the Holocaust and also studying sort of intimate violence but then we also studied uh Milai and so I actually have a book I believe titled Four Hours in Milai that <laughs> details the mm-hmm. horrifying massacre in Vietnam so those are my <laughs> 1969 associations for the most part okay is a country in deep turmoil I think that's fair and I think I mean I actually think I actually think that's sort of the right mood to be going into this movie in because it's not it's not a movie about the height of the counterculture movement. It's it's a movie about the end mm-hmm. of that era and sort of a little bit the disillusionment of coming out of the 60s going into the 70s, mm-hmm. I think. But let's talk about that more after we watch the movie. Uh, for now, let me just provide a little background about the making of this movie and why it is considered such an important landmark in cinematic history. So Peter Fonda, son of Henry Fonda, brother of Jane Fonda, had made a couple of B exploitation movies for Roger Corman, including a biker movie, The Wild Angels, and a movie about an LSD trip called The Trip. Both of these movies had been made for Peanuts, and both of them became pretty big hits, drawing repeat viewing from the counterculture youth, who at this point were kind of desperate to see any reflection of themselves on screen from Hollywood that was completely out of touch. Mm-hmm. You know, Hollywood was still putting out Doris Day movies and big musicals like Hello, Dolly. So Fonda realized this audience had no movies to go see, and he came up with the idea of doing this film about a couple of guys on motorcycles. He sort of pictured it as a counterculture western with, you know, guys on motorcycles instead of horses traveling across the country. 
He called his good buddy Dennis Hopper, both to co-star in the movie, and he knew that Hopper had been dying to direct. He had been begging everybody in Hollywood to let him direct. At this point, Hopper was a struggling actor and about ready to give up on his career altogether. He was going to go teach or something. But he enlisted him to, to work on this movie. They hired hot young screenwriter Terry Southern, who was fresh from Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, to write the movie. And, I mean, basically these were a couple of guys who did not know what they were doing. And there's a million stories coming out of the production of this. Um, I'm not going to get into a lot of them, but basically Hopper was crazy. By his own admission years later, he was crazy. He didn't know what he was doing, and he was convinced that he was a brilliant artist. And this was sort of a bad combination. Everybody was stoned throughout the entire making of this movie. Everybody was fighting. There are times Hopper says they tried to get him fired off the movie. You know, it was a couple of young, stoned guys with... They ended up getting a budget of about $360,000. And somehow, <laughs> they made a movie that ended up making $60 million worldwide. It won Best First Feature at the Cannes Film Festival. It was nominated for two Oscars. And I think it was the third most successful... Second or third most successful movie of the year in terms of box office. And this just kind of threw this hand grenade into Hollywood because suddenly nobody in Hollywood knew anything. They not only couldn't have predicted that this movie would be a success, they didn't even understand why it was after it was. They looked at it and were like, we don't, we don't even understand why people are going to see this movie. <laughs> As movie exec Peter Goober, who was then rising up through the ranks at Columbia, said, Everything seemed different after Easy Rider. The executives were anxious, frightened because they didn't have the answers any longer. You couldn't imitate or mimic quite as easily, churn them out like eggs from a chicken. Every day there was a new person being fired. And Goober says he, you know, he was young and inexperienced, and suddenly that was a qualification. He said because he was young, people were looking at him being like, what do you think? Mm -hmm. What do you think we should do? And this is why this movie is seen as, in part, is setting off this kind of revolution in Hollywood, because the, it was sort of the final blow against the old studio system. If two stoned guys could come in and make a movie this successful, it sort of threw the entire industry upside down. Okay, so that kind of explains why this is an important movie. It doesn't necessarily mean, I guess, that you're going to like it. I don't love this movie. It's one of those movies that I look at and I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand why it's important. I feel like we're in that position a lot. <laughs> and you don't. Where you aren't actually advocating for these films necessarily, but okay. Well, sometimes I am, and mm -hmm. then sometimes I just think it's, a, you know, an important film to be aware of. Sure. An important film to grapple with, mm -hmm. where I don't necessarily have a lot of love for it myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so well, I, what are you what are you expecting from this experience? Um, you know, another cinematic white male archetype. I think we've gone through a few of them now, <laughs> and so this will just be sort of the next iteration. This this will be the counterculture white dude, the antihero sort of thing. So that's that's what I'm expecting. So I'm, I'm unclear. Are you excited about that? I would not use the word excited. No. What words <laughs> would you use? Uh, impatient. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I understand you're impatient. So let's go. Let's go watch the movie. All right. 
This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Easy Rider stars Peter Fonda. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. You do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Also starring Dennis Hopper, the award-winning director of Easy Rider. Man, look, I gotta get out of here, man. We got things we want to do, man. Like, I, I, I gotta get out of here, man. Co-starring Jack Nicholson. I got to seriously, uh, scissor-happy, beautify America thing going on around here. They're trying to make everybody look like you old Brenner. hell of a good country. I don't understand what's going on with it. Everybody got chicken, man. That's what happened. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? I never really thought of myself as a freak, you know? But I loved a freak. No, man. This is grass. You mean marijuana? And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Easy Rider. Nikia, what did you make of this one? I think I found 10 to 15 minutes of it across the entire film. Interesting and thought-provoking. Okay, so not not one 10 to 15 minute segment. No. 10 to 15 minutes spread out. Spread out across the film. Over the entire 95 minute film. Yes. Okay. Which 10 to 15 minutes <laughs> were those? Um... It may be less than ten to fifteen. Now that I'm looking at my notes, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you may have you may have overestimated. So I think that I think Jack Nicholson was a bright spot in this film. Definitely, I think. And every reviewer said yeah. that. Every reviewer was like, "I kind of like this movie until Jack Nicholson came on screen, right? And then it came alive." And then after he is no longer it on falls, screen, yeah, it falls it, off it a little falls bit. It falls again. Yeah. So. And this this is the movie that made him a huge star. Yeah. I can see why. At first, I wasn't sure about him doing like the Southern mm. acts, that whole thing. But it, it worked. So I think the lines that he was given were some of the more interesting in a film that I think was trying very hard to like have people say very deep, perceptive things. Well, to be fair, it all seems deeper if you're stoned. There was a brief moment when they first meet him in the prison or in the in the sort of local jail where he introduces himself to Wyatt and Billy. Mm-hmm. The other and he's talking about being a lawyer with the ACLU. And he's like, I can get you out of jail for almost anything, even murder, as long as the person wasn't white. Right. Which is like, oh, that's interesting. And then there was the whole speech he gave when they're sort of sleeping out one night after going through this like really small town in Louisiana, I believe it was, all about sort of the danger of wanting to be free but not really being free. Right. Which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, that was pretty much it for me. Okay. I mean, I do think you're right. I think I think he is given, and it's, it, certainly in terms of the dialogue, yes. he is given all the important dialogue. Yes. 
because the other two characters really don't say very much right. throughout this entire movie. They're very cryptic. They're very stoic. Okay, so how, how do you want how do you want to approach talking about this movie? You want to, or was that it? Was that really everything you <laughs> had to say about, about it? That was me talking about this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, I guess this is what we would call a road film. The plot really isn't. Yeah, there is basically no plot. And it's just, um, we're hanging out with these guys, and there seems, there's some sort of general statement being made about the last vestiges of counterculture and, and freedom just for the sake of freedom and what you lose when you are trying to attain that freedom. Yeah, this is something uh, Roger Ebert said in his review. And I like, you know, as much as we talked about how the Hollywood studios didn't get this, and this whole period was the young Mavericks taking over in Hollywood, the exact same thing happened in the critical community, which is you read the reviews of the older guys, like uh, Vincent Canby, who was the, the veteran critic for the New York Times, didn't get this movie at all, thought it was pretentious and made fun of it. His, his review was really snotty. Mm-hmm. And then Roger Ebert, who was the young up-and-coming critic, got it and thought it was a great movie and championed it. Mm-hmm. But he said in his review, he said, if you follow the story closely in Easy Rider, you find out it isn't there. The rough cut of the movie reportedly ran over three hours, and Hopper edited it to a reasonable length by throwing out the story details and keeping the rest. So the heroes are suspended in an invisible story, like falcons on an invisible current of air. You can't see it, but it holds them up. And I think that's true. There is virtually no story here. Right. All of the story happens in the first two minutes. Mm-hmm. They make their drug deal. They... They go down to Mexico, they get some cocaine, they sell the cocaine, they get a lot of money, they put the money in the gas tank, Mm -hmm. and then they're off. Across the country, they're going to Mardi Gras. They want to go to Mardi Gras for some reason. We have right. no, we don't even know why they want to do that. But that's it. There's, there's no more story in the movie. No. And we don't know anything about who these guys are, where they came from, what their backstory is, how they know each other, what their dreams are. There's, there's none of that in here either. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is what confused everyone about this movie. Peter Fonda has said that he showed it to his father, to Henry Fonda, who had had at that point a 40-year career in movies. And, you know, he said his father just literally didn't understand the movie (laughs) and was concerned. He was like, he was like, Peter, I know you've put all your eggs in this basket. I'm really worried about it because you're not telling the audience who these people are. You're not, there's not enough story. He didn't understand it at all. So, yeah, clearly the point of it is, is not the story. Well, okay, so if it, that, let's start there. So if it's not about the story, and it's not really about the characters, what is it about? Uh, it's about an idea, I guess. Okay. A myth. A sort of manifestation of the American dream. What's the myth? What's the... What's the... Um, I think the myth is freedom, to a certain extent. Um, I think this idea that you could somehow separate yourself from the larger sort of... This is going to get ridiculous quickly um (laughs) the sort of larger cultural and economic and social systems of a country that you could just opt out well okay yeah because that was sort of what is it tune in tune in turn on drop out turn on drop out right that was the (laughs) right that's that that was a thing that you could do right that you could just drop out of the establishment you could just walk away from the the game and so the first time we meet our anti-heroes however free they are professing to be their freedom relies on what is a very capitalistic transaction of a drug sale 
Right. Like, you're not free until you sell this these drugs. Which, let's also note that there were some just very troubling stereotypes of Mexican people <laughs> at the top of this film. The only time that any person of color has a speaking line, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, I think so. And they are horrible stereotypes of Mexican drug dealers. And it's just yes. like, listen, we need to do that. So a whole bunch of shit going on there. Yeah. So there's no, like, purity in this, right? Because... Your quote unquote freedom is reliant on your your participation in what is a very corrupt system. So that that's one. Yeah, okay. So then we come across this like ranch and they and then we have two cowboys who are shoeing horses. Shoeing horses. I was trying to is it shoeing? It, it is, is shoeing. Who okay. <laughs> are shoeing horses juxtaposed with this <laughs> right. image of our two characters fixing their, you know, fancy motorcycles or right. whatever. There's the there's flag. the modern cowboy. Right, the modern cowboy versus obvious. the cow, you know, the former white hats. It's a nice shot the, with the horse is, in the foreground. It isn't a nice shot. A little on the nose, but it is yeah. a nice shot. Um, but so we get, a, it's again, this sort of idea of American freedom, this myth of American freedom, and here are two versions of it. Right. What used to be the sort of lone cowboy living off the land and Wyatt has this whole little thing where he says, you know, not every man could live off the land and do your own thing in your own time. And I respect that. Right. You should be proud. You should be proud of that. In the meantime, this man has like 18 children that he's trying to <laughs> feed off of the land. And so there's that. With, I think, a Native American With wife. With a Native American wife right. who doesn't seem to speak mm. at all. And then... But that's... Okay, so that's an interesting scene. And I think it's... And I think a lot of people have seen that scene as, you know, sort of the idealized situation in the movie. Mm -hmm. Because they... You know, he is living off the land. It's self-sustained. It seems to be happy. When when Wyatt and Billy show up there, they don't turn them away. No. They welcome them. Mm -hmm. They let them into the barn to fix their motorcycle. Whereas in the rest of the movie, we see most Americans, especially these sort of conservative mm -hmm. Americans, are turning them away mm -hmm. or beating them up or shooting at them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But no, they welcome them in. They welcome them to the table, sit down and dine with them. It's a very idyllic yeah. situation. Yeah. Especially compared to most others that we see in the movie. Right. Okay, so then... So they continue on their journey and they pick up this other sort of wanderer. Yes, this hitchhiker, which is a weird character. It, he's a very weird character who wants to be Porky Pig, apparently. Um, <laughs> and we have this little, you know, scene of the three of them sitting around the campfire, getting high and tripping and having conversations that only high people have because no one else has the time. And that's where you, you, just a side note, you do wonder looking at that, like, the Porky Pig line. Mm -hmm. Was that scripted? Was I that just an not. improv that just went nowhere? Was it the actor trying to come up with something a stone person would say? Mm. Some of that stuff doesn't work for me in this movie. It seems like it's trying so hard. That whole scene I found to be pretty insufferable. Yeah. Um, and part of that is just it's not fun watching stone people because you just, <laughs> when you're not stoned, it's just, it is really just <laughs> infuriating and annoying. But I will <laughs> give him credit for at least mentioning that they were on Native American land and that that needed to be respected. Yes, he, he said the people that... that this land belongs to or beneath you, yeah. you know, be polite about that or something he says. So that was a nice little yeah. moment. Uh, but it turns out he's like the, I don't know that he would call himself the leader, uh, but a member of some sort of 
cult slash theater troupe commune community right. thing um, where all these people are trying to live together and live off of the land and be you know self-sustaining but it's very clear that they know nothing about farming because they're trying to grow crops in the fucking desert and right. that doesn't tend to <laughs> right they're out there they're planting these seeds and everything right. and Billy is picking the dirt up and he's like it's just sand yeah. he's like nothing is gonna grow here and they say that these are all city kids. Right. Who know who, nothing like, about farming. Again, dropped out right. and, okay, we're going to go live in a commune. And yet, this is not an idyllic no. picture no. of that life or of those kids. Right. It kind of makes them out to be idiots. Well, but again, it's a, it's the myth, right? Mm. It was a myth that people felt that, oh, I can just go out and live off the land and do it without knowing anything about agriculture, without knowing <laughs> anything about how to sort of sustain yourself off the grid, quote unquote. And you know that all those kids within two months' time are going to be back at home with their family. <laughs> right. They're going to be calling their parents so... <laughs> up, being like, "Can you buy me a bus ticket home?" So again, it's, again, is this you come? You're coming up against these myths. And there is, we should talk about. There's, there's a. I think Wyatt and Billy, and obviously those names are again. It goes back to the cowboy yep. thing. It's like Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid, mm-hmm. and then Wyatt also has his other identity Captain as America. Captain America. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think they are different characters. Yes. They are not the same at all. They are not. I think Wyatt is more idealistic. Yes. He's much more peaceful. He's more, you know, seems to like everybody. He's a Pisces like me. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Yes. <laughs> Whereas Billy is kind of a dick a little bit. He He's mistrustful. Billy is like... One step removed from a Vietnam vet character, like he's very paranoid. Yeah. He's he's like not which he dude. could be. We don't know. Right, he could again, be. This is more like, something. This is we not don't somebody know. who should be doing drug deals with you. Like this is not. Yeah. Again, I go back to know your crew. I do not think <laughs> that Billy is somebody you really want to ride or die with because he's he's not he's not particularly generous. He doesn't seem to be in it for the self sort of discovery. Right. That Wyatt exactly. Is in it for. And again, I do think it does go back to who these two actors were, too, mm-hmm. and apparently how the experience was on that. I mean, I think that's a lot of just who Dennis Hopper was yeah. at that time. Yeah. Coming through that performance, he was unstable. He was high on much more contentious drugs <laughs> than pot. He was paranoid. And I think all of that is... And I think Fonda was very much more the stabilizing influence mm-hmm. there that I think... But. So, so their reaction to that commune is different too. Where yes. Hopper is, you know, has no patience for he it. He has no patience for it. And we actually we saw that at the ranch too, where Hopper he had to be told to take his hat off mm-hmm. at the table and stuff like that. He's just he doesn't really fit in any of these worlds. But Wyatt wants to believe in the dream still. He's like, no man, they're gonna make it. These kids are gonna make it. They have the right idea, and they. They don't. They do not. Really, they're no. not. <laughs> they're sowing seeds in the sand and then praying for their efforts to be rewarded. It, yeah. And they're not going to be. Yeah, no, I don't think they are. So they leave the commune and ride through some random southern small town and find themselves in the midst of a parade of some sort and are quickly right. arrested for being a part of a parade <laughs> With, without a license. Right, they sort of just join up into this parade sort of ironically. Yeah. They're like, oh, a little small town parade. They ride their motorcycles in it. Apparently that's illegal. And then, well... <laughs> apparently what we see here is and i kept hearing what what's that song signs mm. you know mm-hmm. everywhere a sign everywhere a sign mm-hmm. that's what this movie it's like yeah. everybody just any excuse you know hassle the long airs yeah so 
yes, they the cops arrest them on the pretense of parading without a permit or something. <laughs> and throw them in jail with... George. George, who's Jack Nicholson, a very drunk lawyer with the ACLU, which I don't imagine the ACLU appreciated that characterization. And George is amicable and wise in the way that drunks are wise. (laughs) And has his father seems to be connected in something to some extent where George can pretty much sleep his his hangover off in jail and right. then get the out co- the the cops all know him and, and like him fine. and yeah it's just threw him in the drunk tank overnight but he's not in any real trouble no but he does not lack for self-awareness which i appreciate in that mm-hmm. character and again his whole sort of acknowledge his recognition that you can do a great many things in this country as long as the victim isn't white I also, I, I also think he was probably an audience surrogate character. Sure. Where liberal people who had not dropped out, mm-hmm. who, you know, We're could look for at, the ACLU. That, that's who he was, right? <laughs> that's, he's, he, cause he's still very straight. Mm-hmm. He's never smoked pot. He's, a lawyer, he's got a job, like he's Serious still problem. part of the system. Yeah. Right, he drinks a lot. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's somebody that the audience could relate to, and then that makes what happens to him interesting, too. It, it is. So he um, smokes pot for the first time with Wyatt and mm-hmm. Billy. And this was... Sorry, I keep interrupting, but just to... Because it's hard for us to look back now and realize all the things that made this movie unique, and one of them was that people were smoking pot on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, as as Dennis Hopper said, he said previously, anytime somebody smoked pot or took drugs on screen, they then like went out and stabbed somebody. <laughs> the idea that people would just take drugs as part of their everyday life right. and it was okay yeah. had never been shown on film before. Right. Well, and George speaks to that a little bit when he's like, I heard that it leads to harder stuff. And right. his sort of hesitancy was, he's like, I'm yeah. going to stick to alcohol um, <laughs> and not do and not smoke pot because it leads to harder stuff. And it probably goes without saying that they were, in fact, smoking pot and getting stoned as they made this. This was not prop weed. Why? This was just I weed. would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but that's a gr- that is a great scene where yeah. they teach George to smoke pot, and then he goes into his <laughs> is it the Venusians, the Venusians, the monologue about UFOs mm-hmm. and the Venusians, and he talks for you know about ten minutes about that, and and again it is this very ideal. It's about because the when the Venusians take over, you know, the Venusians are highly evolved. They have no wars. They have no monetary system they have no leaders they have equality all of this stuff and i love there's a moment he gets to the end of that speech and there's there's a beat and then fonda just says how you liking that joint george because <laughs> <laughs> it was such a perfect just pot ramble <laughs> okay and then i think the next sort of set piece is when they're in the diner isn't it yeah um so they take George, well, George decides that he wants to be free too, and decides to go with them to Mardi Gras, and so hitches a ride. <laughs> and he's got his... His, like, football his helmet on. His football helmet, yes. Which is a very sort of funny little image there. So one thing that I did find interesting, I do think, in general, the cinematography in this film is really kind of beautiful. Yes, and I think the cinematographer is Laszlo Kovacs, and I think he probably deserves a lot of the credit for salvaging mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper. I mean, it's not taking credit away from Dennis Hopper, but this was Dennis Hopper's first movie. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, everybody kind of admits he didn't really know what he was doing. And I think Laszlo Kovacs probably deserves a lot of credit yeah. for actually 
turning this into a movie for yeah. the 17 hours of footage that Dennis Hopper shot. Right. You get some really interesting scenes of them just sort of driving through different towns and the, the power of that, of giving you a real sort of feel for where they are and, mm-hmm. and contextualizes them within this sort of larger space and sort of grounds them in a story that is sort of refusing to ground them in anything. Right. And particularly this drag where the, after they pick up George and they're driving through Louisiana... We see these really sort of poor black neighborhoods mm-hmm. that they're passing, and you you see the sort of black people out on the porch and, and families and their children out on the porches. And it's this interesting... I don't know, there's something interesting about it because I was not expecting any recognition of other in this film. Okay. I was going... I, I went into this film thinking that it was going to be very much so this sort of solipsistic sort of thing about white male counterculture angst. And it is that. Mm-hmm. But then to visually recognize that there were other communities, that there were other kinds of people, that there were other lives happening, lives that were actually marginalized mm-hmm. and in danger in a very real way. And so... But I wasn't sure if they were trying to make the point that the counterculture folks were treated as badly or were in somehow parallel to to black folks in the way that they were sort of seen in the country at the time because then we get the scene at the diner right exactly where they sit down and immediately and i'm having a hard time not calling them something terrible but like sort of small town folks (laughs) are very vocally expressing just what terrible would you call them like you call them rednecks rednecks or I am a redneck and I don't have any trouble with you. But I do because that's not cool. So, like, there are small town white folks who have obviously lived in and only lived in these communities and only know one way of life. And so right. anything that comes in looking differently than that is is an immediate threat. And so they are very loudly harassing our three characters threatening our three characters, and then there's a table of young girls who are sort of overtly sexualizing. Right, our we have three this juxtaposition characters. of the, very, the teenage girls right. who are attracted. Right, and again, both of these groups act like aliens have just landed yes. in their town. They have never seen anything a, like right. this. before. There's a bunch of interesting stuff happening there, though, because you have. And see, this is the weird part of sort of sitting in 2019 and watching this film because. I think I could also be bringing stuff to it that was not necessarily intended. Mm-hmm. But this idea, uh, we historically, we have absolved white women of their part in... Systemic racism. Systemic racism, white supremacy, the marginalization of community. Okay. Right. And so the way that it's performed here is very interesting because it's like, what I'm seeing is purity of the white woman that could somehow be corrupted by these three, what do we want to call them? <laughs> Sorry, are you seeing them as surrogate It's Because right, it's a almost? weird thing. But then, because we have a, a comment, one of the, the townspeople says something to the effect of like, they would only be with black women or something. It was, it was some yeah, weird that, comment that was like, they're basically like black people. Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. Right. No, definitely. That that is there. And even the the way they talk about that they talk about gorillas. Right. Monkeys and that kind so of it's like a very your mother weird, fucked a monkey, yeah, basically. Exactly. Which again, it is this racially. That's coded a racialized language. statement. So it's right. a very weird scene where again I'm questioning like, am I supposed to be aligned with these three white men who are only choosing to be on the margin? They do not have to be because they want to engage in some sort of American myth about the lone wolf going towards their quote-unquote freedom. Yeah. 
So I just think it's really, and, and then let's go back to the table of white women and what we know to be the historical sexualization of black men by white women and then yeah. the death of black men because white women yeah. were somehow corrupted by the sort of black man dingo, right? So there's a whole <laughs> bunch of shit happening in that scene that I don't know was actually intended. I, I mean, I don't, I don't. And I don't know if it's just because I'm in 2019 and I'm like, that's weird. I don't think it's a stretch, anything you're saying. I don't think you're you're projecting anything onto this that isn't there. I think I think you can sort of flip it and say that what it is is this indictment of middle class establishment mm-hmm. America. I would argue they aren't middle class. I would say that they were they were working Lower class. Working class. Okay, you're right. Because actually the only privileged middle class person is George. Is George. Yeah. The ACLU lawyer. Okay. And yet he's being seen as another one of these quote unquote hippie, long haired freaks. When right. he isn't. Right. Again, he's choosing to just sort of play in this playground for the moment when he could just as easily put his fucking suit back on and go back into court. And so it's a, it's a, I don't know, there's some interesting, really interesting things happening in that scene. And there's also homophobia because they're also saying, you know, oh, well, they're obviously, these long haired guys are kissing each other and blah, blah, blah. So there's a whole, there's a whole oh, bunch oh, of shit yeah. happening no, totally. <laughs> in that scene. But I just, uh, they, they call them, I believe, Yankee queers. Yes. Yes. So I think that was one, when I say like 10 to 15 minutes of this film, I thought was really interesting. That scene, I thought, I could live in that scene for a while and unpack that. Mm-hmm. Because I think there was a lot going on there. Again, don't know if it was intended or not, or if I'm projecting a lot onto it. I mean, I do think it's intended. I think I think you're bringing an extra layer of perception to it. Because you're bringing the fact that these guys are basically choosing to not be white. Right. That's what, that's what right. you're... Well, and, it, and again, it's coming after you intentionally showed me black people. They are... Like, you did not have to go through and drive mm. through Louisiana and show me black people. They could have very easily not done that scene. And so I feel like you're trying to you're trying to make some sort of kinship there that then we have to unpack and we have to talk about because blackness is not something that I can choose. Right. You can stop being this hippie if you wanted to. And what we know of baby boomers, they do. Yeah, well that's <laughs> right after we finished walking watching it, you started talking about that, which I think is is an interesting perspective on this movie too. And I and I think it's built in mm-hmm. because I do think that's again, I think I think a lot of people watched this movie when it first came out, and I think probably some people still watch it and see it as this celebration of the hippie lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it is. No, I think it's, it's, it's fairly sad. critical. I think it's sad. And at best, it's a lament for the end of that mm-hmm. dream and the failure of that dream at the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, we're jumping ahead now, but its it haunts the entire movie after you've seen it, is Wyatt saying in the end... We blew it. Yeah. In that last scene where they're around the campfire, Dennis Hopper's like, yeah, we made it. You know, we made our big score. We've got everything. We're, and we can retire we got everything Florida. Made. We get to retire. <laughs> and Wyatt's just like, no, man, yeah. we blew it. And doesn't explain what he means by that. Mm-hmm. And Peter Fonda has always refused to explain exactly what that means. But I think it's fairly clear mm-hmm. from the movie. And what Peter Fonda has said is, you know, when people have asked him to explain it, he said, well, look out the window. Mm-hmm. Tell me we didn't blow it. Look where we are now. And I think that's that's the mode of the movie, too. Because we know, you talk about bringing history to it, and you're right. It's like, we know there was no utopian period no. that followed 
No. The sixties and the flower children. And we got Nixon and Reagan and we got right, exactly. <laughs> Nixon and Reagan. Yeah, no. That didn't happen. And in fact Dennis Hopper became a Republican. He was a Reagan Republican. Really? Yeah. So it's again, this is all we're bringing external stuff to it, but it feels right. like the movie knows all of this, yeah. doesn't it? This is why I do think it's a really interesting I do think it's, it's a more layered movie than it looks like, I think. It is. I mean, and I referenced this earlier that that sort of final scene where we would ends up being the final scene with George, where they've you know they've left the diner, they're sleeping, they're camping out around this fire, and they're all sort of talking. And George makes some comment to the effect of like, "This used to be a hell of a good country." Right. After they've sort of lamented the fact that they got harassed in the diner by the locals, and they couldn't find a motel that would let them stay there because people wouldn't accept them for how they were, et cetera, et cetera. And so again, bringing 2019 to it, I hear someone say that, and I hear make America great again and, mm-hmm. and the question becomes what America are you talking about that was so amazing and what was right. happening and and it was a good country for whom which sort of belies this belief in this sort of hippie free lifestyle because if you thought that America was a good country before what part of American history was that mm-hmm. or reflected those ideals that you you say that you believe in But then he goes into the whole speech about freedom and is basically telling Wyatt and Billy that, you know, the reason the locals in the diner behave the way they did, the reason why the proprietors of motels don't want them staying with them, etc., is because they represent freedom. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Right. Which, again, is interesting to me because Wyatt and Billy are very much a part of the marketplace. That's how they got the money to sort of fund this (laughs) this little uh, adventure. You know, however sort of outside of the mainstream market it was, it was a transaction. And this idea that he says something like, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free. Yeah. Because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Yes. And so, again, I'm in this moment... You know, this weekend, we saw two mass shootings happen in Ohio and in El Paso. Yeah. One, we know for sure the terrorist was a white supremacist. Right. He left behind a a manifesto. manifesto. Yes. At this point, we don't know um, the motivation of the Dayton, Ohio shooter. But this is after what has become much too commonplace occurrence in this country of white nationalist terrorism in this country, domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. And this idea of if you tell someone they're not free, they're going to get real busy killing and real busy maiming. Mm -hmm. And that just stuck with me. And again, it's like, it's because of the moment that I happen to be sitting in. Um, But this idea of when we talk about American myth, when we talk about this idea of white supremacy, um, when we talk about, a failed American dream and the fear that that creates and perpetuates and encourages. And then that fear is then acted out as oftentimes racialized terrorism because you are so bought into the lie. And so whether that lie is your freedom, whether that lie is your supremacy because you're white, any of these things, right? You're so bought into it. Your identity is so dependent on it. Well, I mean, I think, I th- so I think this movie would say the lie is how life has to be in America, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this very narrow definition of what kind of person you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to act, what you're supposed to look like. 
all of that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what I think George is telling them they represent as a threat. Mm-hmm. That like you are choosing to opt out of the definition of the American dream and the American life and the rules. You're right. stepping outside the rules. Right. And I do think what you're talking about is just basically this fear of the other. Mm-hmm. And the other, that can be in terms of race or ethnicity. It can be in terms of sexuality. It can be in terms of, you know, they are making that, like you said, they are choosing to make themselves other. Mm-hmm. They are choosing to step outside of that par- the dominant paradigm and exist outside of that. Uh, but it all, the result in the end is, is the same. And it's, I mean, we see in the movie, we're not trying to avoid spoilers. They immediately after that conversation, the rednecks come, beat them the local in the night. People. <laughs> I love how you're defensive about them, even as you hate them and judge them. You don't want me to call I'm them I'm not names. hating or judging. I'm- yes, the fine, upstanding local townspeople come and beat them in their sleeping bags yes. and kill George. Yes. And then at the end of the movie, two more fine, upstanding young I did not say that they were fine or upstanding. I just said that they were Individuals local in a pickup truck kill both Wyatt and Billy. Yeah, just as a LARP, they as pull LARP. out their rifle and they and shoot shotgun, them on the right. side the road right that is the result of all this being other yes so yeah so i don't think i mean yes it is we happen to be watched this movie this weekend when there were two mass shootings within a 24-hour period Mm -hmm. again i don't think it's a stretch for you to bring that knowledge to this film Mm because i do think the issues are there well, because it, so much of it is, for for me, somebody lied to you, and when you found that out, your response was violence. Mm-hmm. Your response was to act out in violence. And so somebody lied to you about your choices, and that if you lived in a good Christian upstanding neighborhood, everything would work out. Mm-hmm. Somebody lied to you and said, okay, you were born a white man, so that means everything in your life is going to work out. Right. Somebody lied to you and said, you know, all these things... And then when the lie is discovered, there's nothing left of you but violence. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's like the danger of the myths, the myth of the hippie, the myth of the American dream, the myth of the wood. Like, it, they're all very dangerous because it means resting your identity on something that when proven to be untrue, there's nothing left in you mm-hmm. but to act out in a way that is destructive. And, yes, it ended badly for Wyatt and Billy, But the generation of baby boomers lived on Mm -hmm. and became upstanding American citizens with homes and suburbs and cities across America for the most part. Right. Well, and this, but this is what I think is interesting about seeing George as sort of audience surrogate Mm -hmm. is that George decides on a lark, okay, I'm going to join these guys Mm -hmm. and I'm going to step out of my nice, safe, insular life for a weekend. And George gets killed. Yeah. George gets punished for daring to step outside his safe, societally approved existence. Mm -hmm. So this movie is not encouraging those people to drop out. It's not encouraging the straight but liberal, perhaps inclined people to hop on a motorcycle and go and grow their hair long and take off across the country. Mm -hmm. Because according to this movie, it's going to get you killed. Yeah. So that's what I think is interesting that this is not, again, it's, there are people who watch this movie and think, oh, that's the life. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what the movie is saying. It's No. It's not an indictment of the people who choose that life, but it's, there's a recognition that it's not going to work out. Yeah. And that it's not going to be this idyllic existence. 
And I think similarly, I think, or I think a part of that, maybe the climax of the movie is the, the acid trip. So they go to, after George dies, George had told them about the greatest whorehouse in America that was in Louisiana. Yes. And they decide, in George's honor, they're going to go to this whorehouse. And they meet up with these two prostitutes, played by Karen Black and uh, Tony Basil. And they end up, this is where they go to Mardi Gras. Oh, yeah, this was probably the other, like, five minutes that I liked. The way that the the scene in Mardi Gras, when they're actually on the street and it's nighttime and they're, like, amidst the crowds <laughs> and it's very sort of cinema verite sort of footage, mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting and well done. Okay, so interesting thing about that. Mm-hmm. That was the very first footage shot in the movie. Hmm. And what happened was they went to the producers who were going to put up the money for this. Um, this was this little maverick production company called BBS. And basically they said, you know, okay, it was a Dennis Hopper never directed before. They gave him about $20,000 and some 16 millimeter cameras and said, okay, go shoot the New Orleans part. Mm-hmm. Go shoot the Mardi Gras part. If we like the footage that you bring back... <sighs> We'll give you the other $300,000 or whatever it is to make this movie. Uh-huh. And again, this was, I think it was before the cinematographer was hired. I think it was before there was a real crew. It was more just like Dennis Hopper and some of his friends cameras handing and, out yeah. cameras and going and shooting stuff haphazardly. I mean, compared to the rest of the movie, that footage looks very amateurish. Yes. And it's grainy because yes. it's 16 millimeter footage. It's kind of awful. I liked it. But that's the thing is you liked it and it does work here because it does sort of it's right before the acid trip and it sort of feels like you're segueing into this like other space yeah yeah Yeah. so i think objectively it's just bad raw footage (laughs) but it they make it really works in the movie i think yeah no i think it's really well done and i actually liked it more than the acid trip scene Mm -hmm. um and again part of that is i don't like watching people on a trip is not. I'm I'm not big on that. I just, I hate dream sequences. Yeah. I hate drug trip sequences in movies. Like just no. Yeah. But the point I was going to make about that is that is not a happy trip. That no. is a bad trip yeah. they are having. Yeah. And this is the acid that the guy in the commune gave them, the hitchhiker. He said, he gave it to Wyatt and he said, take this and when you're with the right people and you're in the right place, <laughs> quarter it and hand it out. And that's what he does, Wyatt. It feels like the right people, and it feels like the right place, and he hands out the acid, and everybody has a bad trip. It is not a happy experience. So again, we come back to this whole, you know, what is this movie really saying about this whole counterculture? Mm -hmm. Culture. (laughs) The counterculture culture. (laughs) It's it's not simple. No. Because again, I don't think it's an indictment of that. I don't think it's critical of that, but I think it's recognizing that it's not this wholly happy Mm -hmm. experience and that it's probably not going to work out very well in the end. Yeah. Okay, and then I guess we're at the end of the movie, right? Yes. And that's just... They die. They die. Really horrible, violent deaths. (laughs) And the motorcycle full of money blows up. Yes. The yes. And again, a little symbolism there. We got the money in the gas tank of the American with the flag, American flag on it. Motorcycle. And that's what explodes. Yeah. All right, so what did Wyatt mean when he said we blew it? Um what did Wyatt mean? 
And the movie, to its credit, does not spell it out for it, us. It, it does not. It, I guess it could mean any number of things. I think it could mean they blew it by continuing on a journey when they had potentially found what they needed already. Like, was that at the commune? Was that at the ranch? That is, it- that is one interpretation people have made, is that the wanderlust urge versus settle down, put in roots right. kind of thing. Which, you know, and again, coming back to that ranch at the beginning with the family and that that's sort of a happy example Mm -hmm. of someplace you could stop and be happy and make a life and they don't do that they just and then the commune is another one possibly so that's sure that's one possibility (laughs) what do you think it means I mean, I don't know. I think, I think the drug deal, as you said, I think that's, you, you were buying into the capitalist system. Yeah. You were trying to make the big score. You know, you were searching for a comfy existence based on the amount of money that you have. Mm-hmm. So you have not really opted out right. of anything. I, I think primarily that's what it means within the context of the movie. And then I think there's just this larger symbolic meaning just in terms of the 60s itself and this entire counterculture movement. Mm-hmm. And again, it's we know looking back going into the 70s what was going to happen to all of that, which yeah. is not much. Right. Really. It didn't really amount to much of anything. And again, going back to when we ta- we started the conversation talking about 1969 and the stuff that happened and it's like, yeah, Woodstock was a nice weekend, but then you had Altamont just a few months later is going to get those extreme poles of the counterculture movement. All right. Anything else you have to say about this movie? Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? It was more interesting than I was anticipating. Okay. Again, I think there were about 10 to 15 minutes where I was like, this, this is interesting. I could, (laughs) and this may, I was going to say this might be my favorite Jack Nicholson, but that's not true. That's a tough call. I think Cuckoo's Nest may still be my favorite Jack Nicholson. He's another one of those actors that I've said this about several people. I think I think I said this about Pacino, too. Mm-hmm. I forget how good he was mm-hmm. because he has become Stick. such a caricature yeah. of himself yeah. just through the longevity of his career yeah. that now we take it for granted. But you, you watch these early movies. He was very, very good. Yeah. I don't think either of the other two actors are that good. They aren't given a whole lot. Hopper, I, to me, Hopper brings the same energy to everything he ever did. <laughs> it's very kinetic. I think, and, yeah. I think the line between his performance here and his performance in like Blue Velvet, <laughs> even though those are two completely different characters, I think the energy, yeah. that sort of manic, mm-hmm. slightly dangerous energy that he brings is the same. And then Fonda is just so laconic and just yeah. so... Very pretty, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to buy a couple of motorcycles and just take off across the country? No, that would be a very different experience for me. Why? I could not freely ride through the South. <laughs> well, neither could they. They got killed. But except that they, I mean... You know, all they had to do was shower and then they could have passed and been fine. Um, So, no, I I will not be doing that. I mean, yeah, it's definitely, it's like I said, it's it's an interesting film to watch from this vantage point, knowing what those characters, not those, they died, obviously, but knowing sort of where a lot of that generation ended up. There's a lot of talk about um, how current baby boomers and their nimbyism have, you know, suppressed affordable go, go, go housing. Go ahead and define nimbyism. Oh, not me. in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> have sort of suppressed affordable housing mm-hmm. in urban areas, uh, which have shut out younger millennials who are looking to sort of live their own dreams and, and also working class and, and low income families. So this idea of like freedom and everybody get along and doesn't quite hold up once you have, you know, assets to protect. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, it's hard to judge any generation no, no, not, for their yeah, youth. Not judge at all. But, but I recently watched uh, the Woodstock documentary because I was debating possibly that we would do that film mm-hmm. for the podcast too. And it's just, I mean, that's 400,000 hippies having this love fest out in the mud. And I just looked at that crowd and I'm like, where did you all go? Mm-hmm. That whole baby boomer generation. They went to work. They did. They went to work and they made a lot of money in the 80s and they became Reagan Republicans like Mm -hmm. Dennis Hopper did. It's depressing. It's a fucking myth, man. (laughs) It's a real bummer. (laughs) So we just brought our podcast back and we're just being a real bummer. Bumming folks out. Bumming people out with it. That's not good. No, we probably should have saved gremlins for today or something. All right, we're going to have to do another movie. Fuck it. No. We're going to throw this one out. No. We're going to do something else. You something get happier. One chance of my weekend, <laughs> and that is it. And if we don't get it, then there's no show. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Uh, Nakia, we, you know, we were just talking about how we were bumming people out, so I think it's good that we are doing something happy and upbeat next week. Mm-hmm. This time we are going to the end of the New Hollywood period and celebrating a 40th anniversary of the release of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. That doesn't sound happy. <laughs> What part of that does not sound happy? Apocalypse. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola, really. It's not, it's not known for happy things. Vietnam. No, it's just not. It's not happy. Yeah, that was sort of poor planning on my part. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try to pick something lighter maybe for the week after that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. I mean, there was a whole thing about I'd be Porky Pig. I don't think that that's a particularly deep conversation, and that would just annoy me. So I'm just... Have you ever wanted to be someone else, he says, and the guy says, I'd like to try Porky Pig. Pig, Yeah, I don't know what that means. Didn't Porky Pig have a speech impediment? He did, sure. I'm not sure that's... And was pantsless. (laughs) I I find it interesting that those are the two things... (laughs) That you focus on when someone says, I would like to try being Porky Pig, you're going to focus on the speech impediment (laughs) and the pantslessness. Of the Warner Brothers universe. Mm -hmm. Bugs Bunny. Well, obviously. Obviously. Right. I would even say... Who was also pantsless. I mean... But he didn't have anything. This is why you're... Okay, so your issue is that... He had like a sports coat and a bow tie, if I'm remembering correctly. (laughs) No pants. No pants and no shirt. Kind of the Winnie the Pooh sort of look. Sort of. With Winnie the the Pooh, it worked. The shirt and the vest and no pants. And no pants. But like, this was... It was odd.
Peppy Le Pew? No, he was he was an assaulter. I'm thinking of other characters I'd rather be than Porky the Pig. <laughs> well, definitely not Peppy well, Le Pew. Well, I forgot that he was a... He was a serial rapist. <laughs> I forgot that part. Very charming, though. <laughs> uh, uh, what's the... Uh, not Wile E. Coyote, the one that he's chasing. What's the that? Roadrunner? Sure. Be Roadrunner. Okay. Or I would rather be... Elmer Fudd? No. <laughs> he shot animals. <laughs> I think Elmer Fudd was the guy that shot Wyatt and Billy at the end of this movie. <laughs> he, was, he had like a growth on his neck. Yeah, he had like he a just, goiter. He was like, not, he should have had that check. gotten any more of a <laughs> monstrous looking local? <laughs> See, I try not to, you're stereotyping and I, I was trying very hard not to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, Porky Pig, really? Foghorn Leghorn. He was a segregationist, <laughs> so it wouldn't be my choice. I don't know what what you're basing that on. His voice sounded like... Okay, now who's stereotyping? Slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Sounded like the masses whip. That's what what I'm basing it on. Daffy Duck? Ooh, you know who I would be. No, I do not know. Of course you do. When I say it, you're going to... The witch with all the bobby pins. (laughs) That's who I would be. It's a little on the nose, quite frankly. Well, I think it works. I got to be completely, I'm not 100% sure this is the most fruitful line for our, our conversation about this movie. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's bring it back. Anyway.